HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Consider the supermarket. Is it a place to get food or a system of bringing food to urban and suburban societies? Or is it more? We're going to examine it closely today on A Taste of the Past. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And indeed, the supermarket is one of those places that a lot of us probably take for granted. It is indeed a place to get food. And if you don't have a supermarket in your neighborhood, you know how important that can be. But it is also a system of bringing food to urban and suburban societies. And yet, when we examine it closely, a supermarket becomes a microcosm of consumer culture, maybe even capitalism and possibly politics, all woven into a narrative of class and our relationship with food. My guest today is the author Michael Ruhlman, and he offers just such a commentary in his new book, Grocery. Michael is the author or co-author, author and co-author of more than 25 books, the majority of the books are on food and cooking, so I was a little surprised at this new book. Uh, his books include the best-selling The Soul of a Chef, The Making of a Chef, The Elements of Cooking, Ratio, 
Ruhlman's 20, which won both James Beard and IACP awards, all fantastic books that uh, have a special place on most people's shelves. His newest work, as I mentioned, Grocery, The Buying and Selling of Food in America, takes a close look at our food-obsessed culture through the lens of the grocery store, its history and evolution, and our relationship with it. Welcome, Michael. Happy to be here. Thank you for your kind words. You have been all over the news with this new book, I have to say. And in a lot, I mean, in, you know, on television, uh, in write-ups, in the New York Times, like a full-page spread, um, I think also in uh, Washington Post, I mean, everywhere. Uh, it's remarkable how you have touched on something. <laughs> and I know, and, and also what I, what, uh, what I wanted to say about that is that each interview has been a little bit different because there are so many aspects to the grocery store. Uh, there sure are. And, you know, you say I've touched on something. Um, I haven't touched on something. It's our food. Mm-hmm. I, all I have is just want us to pay attention to it and, and recognize its importance. And, uh, you know, I, I just I thought, why, you know, I, I get on my horse about the importance of cooking, but even I didn't know where all this food we're cooking was coming from. <laughs> But that, and that was what I wanted to ask. Why, you know, you you did all of this, uh, you know, these cooking instructions and recipes and teaching us to look at food a little differently, especially in um, the elements of cooking. I mean, it, that you know, about tastes. So here we are now talking about where do we get it, right? And you said that in a culture so obsessed with food, and indeed more so today than ever, the so-called foodies and all, you know, how it looks, what it tastes like, where it comes from, meaning which, you know, farms and things. Often, where we get it, there creates more questions than answers. What, what do you mean by that? Um, it, it just, you know, there, there, are so, there are so many avenues. As you, as you noted earlier, there's so many things that you can, can uh, look at here. I so often felt overwhelmed. So huge was the world, the grocery store. So mm. many stories led out. Uh, from uh, from the shelves of the grocery stores, I didn't. I hardly knew where to begin, and it was a matter of leaving stuff out. Um, I mean, I could have written a, a, a book about each of the ten departments of the grocery store, or a book about why there are now ten departments of the grocery store instead of four departments, like there used to be for most of the grocery store's history. <laughs> um, it's you know, it's it's just a, it's an extraordinary world, and um, we take it for granted. We and do. Mainly, I just wanted to call attention to the grocery store, and what you know. What I came out feeling at the end was how lucky we are to have a grocery store at yeah. all. Yeah, well, that's what I say. I mean, you know, you some neighborhoods, well, and we'll touch on that too, where there isn't uh, a decent grocery store, you know, available to people, makes it a little tougher to, you know, to get your daily provisions. Uh, a um, lot. I would, say, I would say a lot more strongly than that. I would say that in in, in places where places, if you live, if if, if how best to say this? You are, if you don't live near a grocery store, you're more likely to be sick, uh, have health-related problems, and you're more like you're more likely to die earlier than someone who lives near a grocery store. That's how important grocery stores are. Wow. Okay. Uh, you um, you say you said that where it all began. That's an interesting point to go back to. Uh, how did we? You know, how did it work in the past? And. And before we had these supermarkets, it used to be general stores, mom and pop kind of things. And how did it work in supplying food to people? And, and why do you think that changed? 
well, it did used to be mom and pop. I mean, of course, uh, stores we've been trading trading for uh, centuries, uh, and then here in this country we had uh, we had like. Um, general stores like you read about in, in Little House in the Prairie. Right. And then uh, the A&P came along and began uh, its sort of march into becoming the biggest retailer in the in the world um, by selling stuff that, that by, by selling goods uh, that we needed cheaper than anybody else could sell them. Um, they were a grocer. They did not sell greens. They did not sell lettuce or fruits or vegetables. They didn't sell meat. Um, we went to separate stores for those. We went to a butcher for our meat. We went to a fishmonger for fish. We went to a greengrocer for our vegetables. And we went to a grocery store for shelf-stable products, um, stuff in boxes, cans, and jars. Um, and that all changed with the advent, basically, of uh, affordable refrigeration and a notion by, by – uh, a guy named Cullen in Jamaica, Queens, former Kroger employee. Would his first uh, name be a, King? <laughs> uh, King Cullen. Right? I, I can't remember what his first name no, is but, uh, no, it is. offhand, but yeah, he started King Cullen. <laughs> yeah. um, and that is reportedly the first supermarket, the first store that sold everything under one roof. It was in Jamaica, Queens. It was 3,000 square feet, which is tiny relative to grocery stores today, which are typically 60 to 90,000 feet on average. Wow. You, you made a, you uh, quoted a figure in the book um, that the modern American supermarket stocks 40 to 50,000 individual items. Yes. Uh, and but how much of it is real food? Yeah, but how much of it is real food? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't think that there has been actually a scientific study of that, unless Marian Nessel knows. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Mainly, it's it's it, it's you have to look at, at, at on a spectrum. I mean, first you have to define what food is, because a lot of the stuff that we say is not food. Is technically there's some nourishment, and you can't eat it. So define what food is. Um, is it good for you or bad for you? Well, that's that's another story. Um, does it make you feel better uh, or worse? Um, Again, that's being debated hotly uh, throughout the country. Is sugar really as bad as they say it is? Uh, is fat bad? Um, why do we keep buying fat-free half and half when we think that dairy fat is not bad? Um, and yet, and yet we we take the fat out and we replace it with something that sugar. we know is bad. Sugar, sugar. <laughs> right, right. Well, back to the timeline of of, of the development. I'm sorry, I get off track. You no, can see how this meandering. I, absolutely, story and I so and. Things. I love conversations like that because that's that we find out so much more. But um, what I wanted to explain to listeners is is mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if you can um, have any insight. You have any insight on that? That yes, as you described, we went to different markets for um, much as some neighborhoods are still today. But butchers were seeking out the best butchers and the green markets and whatever else. But even the grocery stores in the beginning weren't. They weren't really self. They were grocers. They weren't self-service supermarkets, right? So that's correct. A and P was not a self-service. You go to a counter and you you tell them what you wanted. They go get it for you, or right. they fill a bag with baking powder for you. 
things like that. Yeah, so we've come we've come quite away from that. Yeah, why? Once Cohen started, then that's when people started putting everything under one roof, and then the war happened. World War II happened, and then after the war is when supermarket, as we know it, really exploded. Yeah. yeah. Once once uh, they we had um, we started moving out in the suburbs. We had tons of room. There was tons of parking. People had houses. Uh, we moved out of the urban areas. We had all this um, this uh, wartime machinery that needed to be put to use, and we put it to use in in, in the form of uh, food manufacturing. Hmm. And that's sort of when our when our health problems began. Uh, and that leads up to basically to the late '80s when Walmart entered the grocery game and exploded everything. Maybe they get some were, flip-flops they, along with your uh, along with your groceries and you know or, or a you know um, a weed whacker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly. It's you know when a department store started selling groceries signaled the fragmentation of the food retail system. Hmm. When I was growing up in the 70s in Cleveland, I couldn't walk into a grocery store and buy a quart of milk, which I can today. I can buy a quart of milk just about anywhere. Um, uh, that didn't used to be you only used to be able to get it at a grocery store. Um, once Walmart End of the picture. Everyone sort of got into the food business, and it continues to fragment toward the, to, to this day. Um, there were still only ten thousand products or so in the grocery store, um, uh, but over the past couple of decades, that's just uh, mushroomed to the to as you said to where we now have a grocery store with forty to fifty thousand products. In it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned war, the you know the wartime machinery, and and then the the urban sprawl or suburban sprawl. Um, that was also the advent of processed foods. Yes. And that, we find, is filling most of the shelves. You said it's some filling, nutritional value, yeah, but... You know. Yeah, it, it is filling most... Uh, the big center of the store is uh, called the grocery department, as opposed to frozen dairy, as opposed to floral, as opposed to deli, etc. Um and it's it's filled with processed food. It's filled with food that that won't go bad. Mm. That's why it's in the middle of the store. It's on mm-hmm. shelves at room temperature. Doesn't go bad. Why doesn't it go bad? Uh, usually, not because they've preserved it properly, um, but because they've taken all the nutrients out of it. Because it's the nutrients that go bad. So if you take everything nutritious out of food, it won't go bad. So <laughs> uh, a rule to live by is uh, eat food that will go bad. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm going to remember that one. Eat food that will go bad. Well, you it's a good, for the it's an easy rule. yeah for the book you did a close up um, investigative research at a grocery chain that you grew up with. In fact, in Cleveland, can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, the store's called Heinen's. Um, people, if people are familiar with Wegmans, it's kind of that caliber of grocery, a higher end uh, grocery. Yeah, I was store. going to say it's not just any chain grocery. No, it's not. It's 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 it sort of it's considered to be a little bit more expensive, but a higher caliber of product and better customer service uh, than you know, like than an Aldi's, say, or, or um, uh, any of the bigger mass massive chains like Kroger or um, uh, Publix. Though those are you know, I'm not saying those are bad stores either. I'm just trying to give you a sense that it's a, sort of a higher end. We're out uh, on the East Coast, we yeah. Shop right, price chopper. I mean, they they yeah, serve exactly. a purpose, you know. Um, so they started out in the '30s. Um, Joe Heinen was a butcher, and then he suddenly sort of said, "Well, they come here for meat. Um, let's let, let I, I want my customer to get everything they need for the meal. Why haven't shopped somewhere else?" So he began stocking other products. 
uh, he and other grocers throughout the country did this. And the chain is now 24 stores uh, in Cleveland and Chicago. And, it, you know, it's, it's a, that's a small chain, but it does $600 million in sales. Um, and it's still considered a small family business because of the narrow margins uh, in the food world. Uh, what did you, I mean, what did you learn or what insights did you gain from, from really talking to him and, and looking at his model of stores, if, um, if anything? The, it's, it's run by two brothers, uh, Tom and Jeff Heinen, and, and they um, uh, are the grand the grandkids of Joe Heinen who began the store. And they, they love groceries. They love their business. They love their employees. It, it was fascinating. What interested me about their business in particular is that they put their employees ahead of their customer. Their employees, uh, they recognize, they're, they're, they're lost without their employees. So they put everything into their employees um, and, and know that if they treat their em- employees really well, their employees will keep the business running. So I've never seen a business that put their employees ahead of their customer and ahead of profits. Hmm. I mean, they pay them more than union requires. Uh, they could double their profits if they paid what union um, what union laws mandated, but they don't. And that's their biggest grocery store's biggest uh, expense is labor. Well, so you you talked about, and I'm, I'm sure their model is much the same as all the other supermarkets that we're familiar with, as you were just describing, all those shelf-stable items in the center. And then there seems to be this ring around this, the outside, right, with all the, you know, the yes. as you said, the dairy, the produce, the, the meats and, and uh, breads now, too. And of course, everyone's after fresh baked breads. Or... Well, why, you, know, you know why it's around the perimeter. It's because... They need to keep that food either frozen or cold, and that's the best place to put refrigeration units. Hmm. Um, again, we say we're told to shop the periphery without really recognizing why. Well, again, you shop the periphery because that's where all the food that goes bad is. You know, that's all the food that, that is, uh, uh, needs refrigeration and, and needs to be kept cold. Right, and following your rule, that's how we'll shop, right? Um, uh, there are some some more things that I want to explore and about how, how and where we've come, uh, but we're going to take a short break, so stay with us. Hey, this is Cynthia, host of Primary Food, here with Anna Bonengel, a registered dietitian with Eat With Zest, eatwithzest.com, and we are here to talk about Bob's Red Mill and superfoods. So Anna, what is a superfood anyway? One way to think about it is if you think of foods along a spectrum, there are a few foods with fewer nutrients, and then there are foods that are packed rich with nutrients and antioxidants. And so superfoods are those that are on the furthest on the scale in terms of having the most nutrients and antioxidants. Which foods are considered superfoods? Some are super well-known, like blueberries, kale, salmon, but now people are also going nuts over lesser-known foods like goji berries, acai, flax, and chia seeds, and a really popular one now is black garlic. So if I'm trying to eat better, should I go on a strictly superfood diet? Well, you know, superfoods are, of course, great, and I will say the more you eat, the better. However, eating only superfoods would make you deprived of essential nutrients from nourishing food groups like whole grains. Okay, got it. Well, that's great because our sponsor at HRN, Bob's Red Mill, produces a lot of delicious whole grain products. 
you know, to be honest, I'm a huge Bob's Red Mill fan. I love a lot of the, the whole grains that they provide, but I particularly love they've come out with a blueberry hazelnut oatmeal cup. That is totally delicious. It's got classic superfoods like blueberries, but also some of the more trendy ones like flax and chia seeds. Um, it's, a, it's a really nice mix of trend and tradition. Bob's Red Mill doesn't chase fads. They just keep working hard to offer as many delicious whole grain and organic food options as possible in an endless commitment to good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Okay, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Michael Ruhlman. He is the author of a new book called Grocery, The Buying and Selling of Food in America. And Michael, we we were talking about the the development, the advent of the grocery store, um, and of course, a lot of times we I don't know whether it's the whether as consumers I feel sometimes as a consumer I feel kind of at the mercy of these of these I don't want to say capitalists but these you know these entrepreneurs and the and these the the people the big business people. Um, it is a consumer culture, but and I'm wondering, are they? Oh, they're stocking their shelves with a lot of these processed foods, or not even real food items. Is, and there's such a thing that's mentioned in economics as predictable consumption. And I wonder how much we are culprit. Are we? We're feeding into this, and and the grocers, the the, the big business um, chains, are the culprits who are you know foisting it. But it's but as you say, it's a it mirrors our culture. I mean, it must be they're giving us something we want. What well, are your you, thoughts? You, you bring up a lot of points uh, with, with what you just said. Um, and the first one is, uh, and, and, and sort of raised hairs on the back of my neck, um, I feel um, sort of at the, at the mercy of these big food companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you're, you're not, they're at your mercy. Um, it's it's you who have the choice. It's That's we right. as consumers who have the choice to to buy their food or not. If we don't buy their food, they'll stop producing it and produce something that we will buy. So we as a consumer have enormous power in determining what is on our shelves and what is available to us as food. The grocer doesn't care. The food manufacturer doesn't care. They're not making a value judgment. They're just trying to sell you stuff. Right. Right. And you're. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I know that you've. Um, I've I've heard a couple of your different interviews where um, I don't want to say rant, but you have gotten on you know you have gotten on a rant and a very wise one and very important one at, I, in my opinion about uh, the choices we make and the choices that we you know that we can and should be making and we don't have to buy all that junk that's on those shelves that's true and yet it's still you know it says a lot about these grocery stores in and where they are in different neighborhoods the types of grocery stores that exist in different neighborhoods not only it mirrors our culture in many ways i mean it says a lot about class too and about race um absolutely the the grocery store is going to stock what what its neighborhood wants and what its neighborhood buys and if you are in a heavily mexican 
um, population, you're going to get uh, more Mexican products. You know, I was at a grocery store in Hawaii, which has uh, a spam selection like I've never seen before. <laughs> right. They love their spam, right? <laughs> they love their spam. Um, and they have all kinds of other goods out there that I, you wouldn't see in a grocery store in, in, in the Northeast of the United States. Um, it, 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 we are eating better. I mean, we are shopping the periphery more. And so they're filling up with more and more of those products. Uh, we're um, eating more more f- fermented foods, probiotics. We're, we're, it shows the interest in our in our health because uh, we have wellness departments in our grocery store yes. now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we the, you know we have fermented tea kom- kom- kombucha and we have these hemp milks and uh, of course there's gluten free stuff. We're suddenly we're, we're, we're we think gluten is bad for us. We never even knew what gluten was before. Suddenly it's bad for us and everything's gluten free. Uh, it, so it, it also shows our con- confusion and, to some degree, our ignorance about what really is good for us, what's not good for us, uh, and what we ought to be eating and, and how. Right. Well, that's it, it, it's interesting that you um, you mentioned the different departments: the gluten free and the you know the organ. Now we have organic sections, and and uh, my husband and I were visiting a, a large supermarket that because we live in the city, we we shop, our supermarkets are you know the size of most apartments. You know they're very tiny. Um, and we were shopping out of town at a large supermarket, and he started to laugh. He saw a sign next to one of those departments that said "Natural Foods." <laughs> uh, that <laughs> so even he, means it's not. Yeah, <laughs> he was wondering, well, what's an unnatural food, right? <laughs> And, and one doctor said to me when I was shopping, which said, if it has to tell you it's food on the package, it probably isn't. Right. Uh, you know, there used to exist a lot of, and you mentioned this in your book as well, there used to exist a lot of food deserts um, around the urban areas particularly. And we still have some of those today. Can you shed a little light on that? Uh, we, we do. It's something like 20 million people live in a food desert. Uh, and that's both urban and rural. Rural doesn't... Uh, urban seems to capture the imagination a little better uh, because it's because uh, it, it 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 hits uh, African American communities more more um, more often. But rural food deserts are equally uh, prominent and a problem. And these are both places. A rural urban desert is where there's not a grocery store for you know one to ten miles uh, mm-hmm. from you. And if you don't have a car, you're 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 reliant on your gas station down the street for. Uh, manufactured food. Right. Same thing in an urban area. If you've got to take four buses to get food, and you're trying to hold down a job, and if you're raising kids, you're gonna you're just gonna go to for the fast food or the convenience food at the at, you know at, at the CVS. Right, right. And in a in an urban area, of course, now there are solutions to that. There are all these, you know, you can just click a button and you've got your market basket delivered to your door. You know, the next yeah, day. Yeah, if you've got the cash day. for that. But if you've yeah. got the cash for that, you probably don't live in an urban desert. Hmm. So that's kind of a, a a problem there. But yes, there are other options, um, and perhaps one day delivery will become so cheap that that. Um, Everyone, no matter where you live, will be able to afford some sort of delivery of food. Right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, you mentioned how uh, grocery stores mirror a lot of about our relationship with food, and yet it's there when we talk about food in all of these great dialogues we have, and you know, and, and programs. We, even here at Heritage Radio, you know, we talk about 
the good foods and where to get them and what, how they should be grown, sustainably grown and, and whatever else. But grocery stores are most often overlooked. Uh, we take them for granted. Because we take them for granted. And also maybe because a lot of people don't want to admit to them as a source of their of their market shelves. I mean, the so-called foodies love to claim, you know, the green markets and the and the fancy butchers and as being their major source. But I'm sure that uh, that much of their shelves are filled with items that they get at the grocery store, and yet we don't pay a lot of attention to the quality of them. Well, we are more and more, I think, and that's uh, a, a lucky thing. Um, but I, I wish more people did pay attention to the quality of what the food we bought because that would increase it. That's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, and I, I mean, that, that's I'm very opinionated on that. I mean, it seems that seems that my grocery store deals and caters much more to people who want the ready to eat item. I mean, the salad bar keeps growing and growing and growing. And you know, while I watch the produce section shrinking, but then I don't go there primarily for my produce, and yet. Yeah, you know, when you got to put, you know, a couple meals a day on the table, seven days a week, you, you know, you've got to rely on, on convenience quite often. Uh, you do. There's no doubt about it. Especially, you know, New York City is is a, a different animal in the food retail game um, because uh, size and and square footage is uh, both in one's kitchen and one's uh, grocery store is, is limited. So New York City is, is different, and there's going to be more. Uh, prepared foods for you, like I, you know, the Whole Foods in, in New York City uh, have invested heavily in, in the uh, prepared foods. Uh, it's like half restaurant, half grocery store right, now, right. And, and bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it's changing that way. Grocery stores are trying to lure you into the grocery store uh, because, as, as as a social hub, it's become the social hub, the grocery store. Um, so that's changing. I don't think they're making mo- they're, they're not making a lot of money selling this prepared food, but we're certainly buying it. And I know research shows that um, we're not cooking more, but we are eating more meals at home, uh, which is interesting. It's because we're buying prepared food and food that we just uh, heat and serve. Right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting because there is a, a topic that, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention this about your book, um, I did a show several years ago with Dr. Tracy Deutsch, and she um, wrote a book on on the advent of grocery stores and the and the evolution of grocery stores. But it was more gender politics because it was about um, building a housewife's paradise, as it was claimed yes, to I'm, be. I'm, right? I'm, was, yeah, that's the name of the book, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And you know, it was all about gender and politics and gender politics and talking about making women's lives easier and you know, everything was geared to what the woman would want to want to buy and of course that has changed today, but you had a change in your life growing up very early on in that uh, you watched your father be the main shopper. Yeah, my dad <laughs> my dad loved grocery stores. He loved shopping and uh, my mom, my, both my parents worked, uh, and so, and he liked to shop, and my mom did not, so he did all the shopping. And you could only shop in Cleveland on Saturdays because union uh, laws closed the grocery stores on Sundays and at 6 o'clock every night. So everyone who had a working family had to do all their grocery shopping mm-hmm. uh, on one day, so they were packed, and we'd, we'd, we'd have to bring home all the food for the week in one day. That was a lot of food. Mm-hmm. 
and you wanted to head right for the ice cream right away if you were a kid and your mom brought home. If you were a kid, <laughs> or, yeah, or that sugary cereal, the, right. the, the Captain right. Crunch right. and stuff like that. <laughs> right, interesting. Well, Michael, it's it's a very interesting book and an extremely interesting topic that touches everyone's lives because we have to eat. Everyone has to eat, and whether you buy your groceries at uh, you know at the farmers market or. Online, as I said, with a click of the button, you know, eventually you go to the grocery store for something. And and yes, indeed, it does mirror our culture. And you've done a wonderful job outlining that. And I thank you so much for your time. It's really been uh, enlightening in the topic. And I thank hope you. everyone will take a look at it. Michael Ruhlman, again, his book is Grocery, the Buying. Let me get this right. The Buying, the Selling. And the buying and selling of food in America. I'm sorry, I blew that. Grocery, (laughs) the buying and selling of food in America. Michael, thanks again. And thanks for listening, everyone. This has been A Taste of the Past. And as always, I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And I hope you'll go to our website at heritageradionetwork.org. Remember, we are a member-supported network. So go to our website, and you'll see that beating heart in the upper right-hand corner. Click on it and make a donation of any amount or become a member if you want to continue hearing all the great shows that are on the network. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Today on Fresh Pickings, we're taking a look at a trend that's old as time, paleo. The Paleolithic diet is a nutritional program based on foods available to humans living in that era. The idea was introduced in 1975 and was popularized by Lauren Cordain in his 2002 book, The Paleo Diet. In 2012, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics described paleo as one of the latest trends in diets, and in 2013, it was Google's most searched weight loss method. On this episode, we'll talk to Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears, about the paleo diet, paleo foods, and paleo flowers. Then, Krista Margies, a baker from Charlotte, North Carolina, will share a paleo flower recipe with us. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Welcome to Fresh Pickings.
Humans have been on Earth for some 2 million years. For 99% of this period, they have lived as hunter-gatherers. Of the estimated 80 billion people who have ever lived on Earth, more than 90% have foraged for all of their food. Only in the last 11,000 years or so have humans begun to domesticate plants and animals. And now, gathering or foraging is totally cool again. Have you ever gone foraging, Kat? This is Kathy Irway, host of Eat Your Words. She also runs a blog called Not Eating Out in New York. I have, actually. I went morel foraging in Georgia a couple years ago, but I don't think I'm as experienced as you. Oh, well, I love to forage. I mean, I just picked some spring onions the other day in the park. I've been on a few tours around the city, and uh, I just love to create recipes from whatever I find. You go foraging in New York City? Yeah, there's some like great foraging tours. Wild Man Steve Brill hosts some. But, you know, you can go find a lot of things. So which park do you go foraging in? Well, I live right by Prospect Park, which is like a gold mine for foraging. And the woods are actually pretty well protected, and you can really forget that you're in Brooklyn sometimes. Hey, Kat, what do you think of when I say paleo? I'm talking with Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. Harry is also the co-owner of the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store in Williamsburg. Well, when I hear the word paleo, I think about cavemen. Yeah, you're not far off. I mean, I was talking more about the paleo diet, which, you know, it's an approach that is the idea that humans evolved to eat certain foods. And when we transitioned from hunter-gatherers into sort of a settled, more agricultural lifestyle, that our foods became overly processed. And the paleo diet avoids those processed foods. So what foods are we talking about that are in the paleo diet? There's a lot of variability uh, in the way that the diet is interpreted, but typically when people talk about the paleo diet, it includes vegetables, fruits, nuts, roots, meat, as well as organ meats, uh, really using all of the animal. And it usually excludes things that humans came to consume later, like coffee, alcohol, processed oils, salt, sugar, dairy, legumes, and sadly, grains. Okay, grains. So does that mean that on the paleo diet, you can't have flour? That's correct. You can't have flour that comes from grains like wheat. But thankfully, it's really easy now to make baked goods with flour alternatives. There's been a lot of flour alternatives that have been developed. And if you're following the paleo diet, you can use substitutes, nut flours, root starches that are being blended to create things like paleo pizza, pancakes, cookies, and more. Okay, that sounds a whole lot better. I think I could follow a diet if I could still have pizza and cookies. They're some of my favorite foods. But how do you know so much about the paleo diet anyway? I don't follow the diet myself, but I've spent some time sort of learning about it. I've had some great guests on Feast Your Ears to talk about it. And last year, in episode 19, I interviewed Samir Patel, who's a science journalist, photographer, and editor based here in Brooklyn. He's the deputy editor at Archaeology Magazine, and he had a lot to say about how early humans ate and how that relates to the paleo diet. So, Harry, why do people choose to eat paleo now? Well, the paleo diet follows similar foods to those eaten by our earliest ancestors. And if you think about the entirety of human history, the modern age is actually very small. And humans evolved for a very long time before we became settled, you know, and started farming. So the idea is that if you follow those nutritional guidelines, you're putting your diet more in line with the evolutionary pressures that shaped our genetics. And that makes our bodies happy. It definitely does sound like a very healthy way to eat. 
So do you sell paleo-friendly products at the Brooklyn Kitchen? Absolutely, we sure do. There's no doubt that fruit and veggies and lean proteins are great for your body, and we promote cooking with real ingredients. The available scientific data about it shows that eating this way can lead to improvements in body composition, metabolic effects, compared to a typical modern Western diet, which tends to include a lot of processed foods. If you cut out all that junk and focus on fresh, real food, it can certainly help your body. Are there any downfalls to the paleo diet besides not having coffee and beer, which are two big ones? Well, I don't think I could follow it because I definitely need coffee. Beer, I suppose I could live without, but probably not coffee. Um, One of the main things is it can be tough to get adequate calcium intake on the paleo diet, so you have to sort of be careful for that. Humans have adapted nutritionally over time, and we do need to remember that our digestive abilities are not exactly the same as those of paleolithic humans. We've changed along with our diet in the modern world. Some critics take issue with the whole premise of the diet, but there are a lot of proponents of it. I think if I was transported back to Paleolithic times, the food I would miss the most would be chocolate cake. I love chocolate cake. But luckily, if I decided to go paleo, Bob's Red Mill's paleo baking flour would allow me to still eat all the cake I wanted with no worries. I mean, as long as we're not also counting calories. So to find the perfect paleo chocolate cake recipe, I enlisted Krista Margies from Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, Krista, tell me a little bit about how you got into baking. I've been baking pretty much all of my life, but I went to school almost 10 years ago specifically for baking and pastry and just went out into the world with it. And I worked in several restaurants, and now I am teaching others at the Art Institute of Charlotte. Great. And before that, you worked at a donut shop. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. It's a gourmet donut shop in Charlotte. Everything is made from scratch, and everything is locally sourced and totally fresh. So, of course, naturally, we would, you know, we listen to the customers. And we had a few gluten-free customers, so we developed a recipe, a gluten-free recipe specifically for them. And what was that recipe? It was using Bob's one-to-one, which is a series of uh, starch flours, plus the addition of xanthan gum, because, you know, when you don't use wheat, you don't have that gluten production, so you need something to bind it with. So Bob's Red Mill had that already completely made for you. This is Kat jumping in. I just wanted to mention that Bob's one-to-one flour is not the same as their paleo baking flour, which we will get to shortly. So it was, it was Bob, that, and, you know, everything else, the eggs and the fat and the spice. <laughs> awesome. So you um, worked on a recipe for this episode and you picked up some paleo flour to work with. Can you tell me a little bit about using that? Yes, definitely. With baking... It's really easy to just subtract gluten out of baking just by incorporating air using your eggs. When you whip eggs for five, ten minutes, it doubles and triples in size. So you have that frothy rise. So when you add something that doesn't have gluten to it, it doesn't really matter because you've already got it puffed up. 
Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about the recipe that you're including in this episode. It's a very simple recipe. It's called chocolate fondant. It's essentially chocolate lava cake. Really what it is is eggs whipped to that double frothy goodness and melted chocolate, a little bit of coconut oil for that fat texture, and the paleo baking flour. Perfect. So for anyone else who's trying to kind of experiment with recipes using paleo flour as a replacement for traditional flour, do you have any other tips other than, you know, making sure you're whipping the eggs more? You can do it also with egg whites. Obviously, you create a meringue, you get that rise. Um, But really, baking powder, baking soda. Great. Thanks to Krista for sharing her tips for using paleo baking flour. You can find her recipe at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's our show. Be sure to check out bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings for more of our favorite ingredients, delicious recipes, and great coupon offers. Join us next week for more fresh pickings brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is a believer in good food for all. I'm Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.